day wherever you may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truth to you.org that's truth number two letter you.org it is time for gleanings from genesis i'm john and joining me all the way from louisiana is my very good friend and co-host of the tonight tour ross nichols g'day mate hey john how are you doing very well thank you my friend and in north carolina the professor of ancient judaism and early christianity at unc president of united israel and editor-in-chief of the transparent english bible the teb of which the book of genesis is now available at amazon in both paperback and kindle and uh thank you for being with us Dr. James Tabor. Thank you, Jonah. I missed you guys. We had to take a little break, but it's great to we, be back. We did have to take and a little break. Always, you, you've got to always say UNC Charlotte because we've got Chapel Hill. Americans know this. I don't know if mm-hmm. Aussies know it. No, I don't but know it. That's our big rival is Chapel Hill. So you got to <laughs> give UNC Charlotte. UNC so, Charlotte. That's hey, where yes, you are. Charlotte, North Carolina. North Thank Carolina. And, uh, and hey, listen, before we go any further, I just mentioned Amazon and the paperback and Kindle. People can, if you don't have a copy of this right now, people, you, the good news is you can pause this podcast. You can go to Amazon. You can download the Kindle. You get it immediately. And the advantage of the Kindle is that you have the footnotes available on the page. All you have to do is just wave your cursor over it and the footnotes come up. It's a wonderful tool, uh, tool uh, to have. James. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, uh, some people have said to me, like there's even a comment on Amazon, you can look it up. person gave the, the book one star, which is a very oh. horrible rating. <laughs> but the reason was this person didn't like the footnotes at the back. There's like a, almost a thousand footnotes at the back. And you know, I did this on purpose. I knew the Kindle would be available for those who want them to pop up. But you know why I did it, Jono? You're going to demonstrate this in just a minute. I want people to read it and particularly to read it aloud and get the feel of it. And you can also study it, of course. But if you study it, you can use the Kindle and pop the notes. But if you stop at every verse, look how many notes there are. Just this page we're going to do today. Almost every verse has a note mm-hmm. and you get bogged down. And I want you to get the feel of the original Hebrew. That's why we call it the transparent English version. So yes, study it carefully, word by word, verse by verse, but also read a chunk of it and get the feel of it. And that's mm. that's why I kind of hid the notes in the back. It was purposeful. I hope that reader will reconsider and maybe decide that uh, yeah, it's I'll, a good idea. Yeah, I hope idea. they can go in and change it. Go ahead. Well, that's it. Well, well no, I was just going to say, Ross, I mean, there really is no reason why you wouldn't get both. I find that uh, depending on the situation, whether you're studying in your office or whether you're sitting on the lounge, on the couch and, and enjoy like there's a reason to have both. And I would encourage people to have uh, a copy of both formats. Ross, you were going to say. Yeah, I was just going to add to what James said about getting the feel of the text by reading it. And, you know, there's something about that. There's something that that I really want to draw out about this particular translation. It is designed as the original was designed to be read. In fact, you know, if you think about it, I won't go there tonight in the class, but uh, Deuteronomy 31, 10 and 11, every seven years, uh, during the festival of Sukkot, the year of release, the people would all be gathered together and the text would be read aloud and it would, it would really move the people. It would not only inform them, but it would, it would be for the purpose of, uh, listening to the words read aloud. So I often will, you know, I spend a lot of time alone at my office, but I'll read the text of the Torah aloud. And when you do that, you get the feel of the rhythm of the Hebrew, particularly mm-hmm in uh, james's translation so there and it and if you're like he said if you're constantly interrupting yourself by checking out the notes uh you don't get that feel so there's room for both with this translation absolutely yeah now while we're talking about that and i'm glad james that you brought up the um the comments on amazon the reviews now i wanted to i for a long time since i got the book i wanted to go to amazon and leave a five-star review and for whatever reason amazon won't let me do it i don't know why they don't like me and uh, I'm trying to overcome that because I've left re- reviews before. And I've got so many Bibles here on my shelf, uh, different translations for different uh, reasons, and they all serve a purpose. But I tell you now, uh, I have nothing like the TEB. I have nothing like uh, the book of Genesis from the TEB. And I wish I had it over a decade ago. It, it really is that enlightening. 
Uh, I wanted to put that in a, in a five-star review. Amazon won't let me do it. And if anyone knows why, well, just give, leave me a comment and we'll figure that one out. But I, what, I, what I would yeah. encourage dear listeners to do, because it really does help us, is if you go to Amazon, if you've, if you've got the book, leave a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it, James. I was going to say, uh, in the opening of the book, I put some testimonies, and there's one in particular that stands out. It's by a professor in linguistics. He got his PhD at University of Texas, and he says, uh, reading this is like something I've never read before. Mm. Now, our, most of our listeners have read Genesis, and I know this particular gentleman. Uh, he majored, I think, in Bible in college. But anyway, he says, there's an ancient mysterious quality about it that makes me want to, like Moses, take my shoes off while standing on holy ground. There's the feeling that I've discovered something that's been hidden for the ages. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And this is a person who has a degree in the linguistics of the Bible. Brilliant. But he saw yeah. it as a new book. Yeah. And there's another woman who's reading it to her children. I'll just read you the first line. Please. I'm just enthralled at how beautiful the wording is and excited to read it aloud to the children. You know, kids, they, oh, the Bible, he's going to read that again. <laughs> Talk about a fascinating story. It reminds me of a play being read. I can imagine someone like Mark Twain doing a reading of this. It makes me want to stand up move around, use my body. I can mm -hmm. visualize the whole scene. So yeah. those uh, testimonies are what inspired me to put the notes in the back. Long mm -hmm. story yeah. short. So let's yeah. read. Let's let's do that. But before Jono, we do, you're a um, great you're a great reader. Thank yeah, you, my friend. Ahead. We're going to get into the text. Um, but just again, dear listeners, if you don't have a copy of this yet, there is a link in the description. If you have any comments, we would love to hear from you. Please leave them on this podcast. And uh, speaking of which, shout out to Ida Blom and Billy Kimbrough. Oh, Billy and Ida. Hey, uh, we know that, both that, of these guys. Hey, yeah, we know them going? both. I tell you what, Ross, we we both uh, met up with them. Well, it was my first time to meet them both in 2015 in Israel, of all places. So uh, that's a wonderful thing. And um, they wrote to us this past week, letting us know that they are eagerly awaiting each of these episodes. So we're really glad to be back uh, doing the next episode now. And also uh, comments. Uh, we get a bunch of comments on Facebook, on um on the uh, podcast here at Truth To You. I uh, can't read them all, but Michael says, Shalom, Jono, James, and Ross. I really enjoyed the first episode of Gleanings from Genesis. I downloaded the Kindle edition in time for the first parish show of the year. Keep up the great work as you continue in the service of Yehovah. Well, we really appreciate that, Michael. And dear listeners, we'd love to uh, hear your comments. And if you can leave them on the podcast, um, if we get time, we can address them. Uh, we are continuing. We're still on page 33. How about that? Um, and we're picking up from chapter 2, verse 8. And uh, there's a bit of geography here, Ross, and I'm hoping maybe you can help me. It says, Yehovah um, planted, uh, Elohim planted a garden in Eden at the east, and there he placed the soil creature whom he shaped. And Yehovah Elohim made sprout from the soil every tree desired for sight and good for an eatable thing. And uh, the tree of life in the middle of the garden, and the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and bad. And a river goes out from Eden to make drink the garden, and from there it is separated and becomes four heads. The, uh, the name of one is Pishon. Uh, it goes all around the land of uh, Havilah, where, there is, uh, where there's gold, and the gold of that land is good. There are bdellium and onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It goes all around the land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Hidechel. And uh, it is the one walking east of Syria. And the fourth is, it is the Euphrates. Uh, let me stop there. <laughs> Where is the Garden of Eden, Ross? Can you, you I mean, whenever I it's, need to know something in, in geography regarding the Bible, I just go to you. Come on. What can you it, do with it? It's in, it's in Louisiana. No, it's not really. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's interesting because we do know a couple of these, or we certainly we certainly have some ideas about this particular region. Most scholars would place, uh, you know, if you're basing your understanding from the text, somewhere in the ancient Near East around uh, Mesopotamia, 
you know, because you you at least recognize Tigris and Euphrates, uh, where it talks about Hiddekel, the I'm looking at James's note, the LXX, the uh, Septuagint represents that as the Tigris, mm-hmm. and of course the Euphrates. So if we would uh, if we would go with what we know, we would at least put it in uh, Aram Naharin, is it the the land of the two rivers? But uh, obviously things have changed a little bit. I'm sure that people have searched for the Garden of Eden forever and ever and not Mm. with any luck found it. But it's somewhere in that region where everything seems to begin in the ancient Near East. James, do you know of any more information from the text that might put us closer if we decided to take an expedition and find it? Add it to the tour. (laughs) Well, wherever those rivers, you know, they come from the mountains, Mm-hmm. And you're essentially talking about the, you know, the mouth of a river is where it empties out. And that would be the Persian Gulf. So north of the Persian Gulf, uh, it seems they come together and make what's called a head. Mm-hmm. And so probably right there, uh, that would be Saudi and Arabia, I'm, Iraq, and so forth. Yeah, and I'm inclined to agree. That, that makes perfect sense to me. But the problem is, and you've made a note here, of course, uh, it goes all around the land of Kush, and the note is that that is south of the Nile. Um, how, how do we square that? Hmm. I think it has to do with whether we know what Kush actually means, and sure. especially at this period. And, you know, we're going to get to Genesis 10. So let's hold that and okay. see if we can identify Kush. Because there can be other, uh, I even said in a note, uncertain, perhaps Mm -hmm. the lands of the Nile. You know how these designations change over the years. Yeah. Yeah, So, but if you go back, uh, let's see, you started reading, you read verse 9, right? I did. Uh, And I did want to say, just going back, that we've got these two trees. And we talked a bit about this in episode Mm 5. So people have heard this, but I want to emphasize again, and it'll come up again when the Adam and his wife, Eve, Kava, mm-hmm. are kicked out of the garden, so to speak. And the question is, they, they're they definitely put out, but I use kicked out purposely because that's how people think of it. And they've tended to think of this tree of the knowledge of good and bad. Evil is not the best translation because it's literally tov and ra good and mm-hmm. bad really you know like up and down good and bad mm-hmm. so it is bad but evil has a, just a different connotation so the idea is that you come to a knowledge or an experience in hebrew yada is remember it can even use be used uh, just a bit later here for sexual intercourse so it's actually an experience of good and, and bad and the way i have presented this in my classes and my understanding of it is that they're going to be forbidden on down, and we'll wait till we get to verse 16, to eat this tree. And mm-hmm. and as we get down there, let's talk about, again, just reviewing, why are they forbidden? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted to just pick up on that, these two trees. We're going to talk about what the trees are. But I love also the alliteration, you drink. A river goes out from Eden to make drink the garden, mm, yeah. to cause to drink. I know we don't talk like that, but that's the Hebrew. You cause the garden to drink. You know, Jono, you have a garden. When that water, that hose, hits yeah. that dry ground, you cause the wa- you cause the garden to drink, don't you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's that's so right. literal. I love it. And it then is. these rivers walk. I had yeah. someone write me who does bible translations and and this person uh, a jewish uh, scholar was sort of objecting to my literalness he says well you know rivers don't really walk i said halak well halak yeah. just means <laughs> i said actually it means walk it may, it can mean move but since it's rivers and people i i want the alliteration again and i want the feeling of it you know uh, yeah. to be in there as it is in the hebrew Really so like it's walking, yeah. moving around, you know. So Yeah, yeah. and I was going to ask you about that because that, that stood out to me because I'd never seen that in a translation before, but evidently that's, that is the word that's being used. Hidekel, it is the one walking east of Assyria. I think that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. The other thing I've heard all my life, it's just stuck in our language, the Garden of Eden. And it's really the garden in Eden. Mm-hmm. It is a place. And in the place called Eden, 
at the east, you plant this garden. So it's actually a region. It gives you a different feeling. Because otherwise, when you say the Garden of Eden, you say it so fast, you just think there's a garden and its name is Eden, right? The Garden right. of Eden. But notice the Garden of Eden is really the Garden in Eden and within so, that region. So, so I think that... Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I mean, it means, can it mean then, James, that the region of Eden expands larger than most people would imagine, and perhaps uh, these designations of rivers are accurate, uh, as we understand them to be, perhaps the region of Eden is much larger. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And if it does go all the way up to the the head, you know, we have headwaters and, mouth, and the mouth, mm -hmm. right, with rivers. Ross is in Louisiana, so he's... He knows about the mouth of the Mississippi, but it mm -hmm. starts way up in the northern part of the United States and comes on down. So maybe Eden goes all the way up through Mesopotamia that apparently was this incredibly rich area in the ancient world. You know, we tend to think of it as desert now, but it might have been the plum of the whole planet at that yeah. time, you know, right. just lush with all kinds of things. And then this garden in Eden and I love that, at the east. Mm -hmm. Remember, the presence of God is always symbolized by the east. The sun comes up on the east. You have the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Everything always faces east. Mm -hmm. And so Eden seems to be a kind of a sanctuary, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, you have this sort of uh, garden. Uh, didn't Ernest Martin, didn't Dr. Ernest Martin put forward this idea in one of his analogies in a book that the garden within Eden was somewhat of the holy of holies, if you are. He compared the two, didn't he? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so can I, Russ, can I ask you a couple of questions? Um, in the East, at the East, would that suggest the, um, the writer is uh, to the West? You know, I don't know if we can determine the location of the writer. It is a good question because sometimes in the biblical text we do get that, you know, and uh, I recently taught in Deuteronomy, and you look at Deuteronomy, and the writer is suggesting that uh, these are the words which Moses spoke in the land of Moab, you know, and he's he's referring, he's writing as one to the west of the Jordan Rift about an event that takes place in the eastern side. So mm -hmm. sometimes we can get the orientation of the writer. In this case, it seems that the writer is... Uh, speaking just generally from the outside, describing a more general location of the garden within Eden. It was east within the garden. I don't know if we can tell his location, but another thing or that's her worth, location. Another thing that's worth noting, though, I suppose, is that um, uh, Havilah, uh, there is gold. There, there are areas here that are mentioned that clearly have a reputation, and this is post-reputation that the... Um, the writing is uh, that the author is penning the text. Is that fair? Yeah. And, and the writer is, you know, it's like, you know, where there's a lot of gold, like everyone mm. that reads it goes, Oh yeah. Havilah, yeah. I know where that is, but we don't know where it is, but the writer is writing as if the reader understands this and, and uh, informing them of these clues. Mm -hmm. Verse 15. And Yehovah Elohim took the soil creature and made him rest in the garden of Eden to service it and to guard it. And Yehovahim laid charge upon the soil creature, saying, From every tree of the garden, eating you will surely eat, and from the tree of knowledge of good and bad you will not eat from it. For the day, on the day, that you eat from it, dying, you will surely die. James, um, the repetition, the emphasis here. Yeah, it's a way, it, it's a double verb, and uh, literally eating you will surely eat. I add the word surely as an addition to show that it's emphasis, but it's, it's literally just this uh, lineup of verbs. The double use of the verb indicates emphasis is what the note mm -hmm. says. And so it's just this idea, which I think is, you get it often when we would use the word really is uh, eating, you will really eat or dying, you will really die. Mm. Uh, it's a way uh, you can almost hear it if you say it that way. Mm. Yeah, and in with Hebrew, your voice. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to throw in James your your point in the Hebrew. It's achol tochel. You have a repetition of the verb eating. You will eat. So this is exactly the way it reads in the Hebrew. Whereas a lot of translations would just eliminate that and 
say it a different way. But it's there. It's there. And uh, and to indicate that, of course, surely, as you mentioned, James, it's not in the text, but it's in italics, so we know that. And you've added the exclamation mark because there is an emphasis. Dying, you will surely die. And Yehovah Elohim said, not good, the soil creature being by himself. It's kind of a little bit Yoda there. Not good, the soil <laughs> creature being by himself. Mm. I will make for him a help. As his one before, as his one before. How do we explain that, James? The the um, the way this is written. I want to go back just a minute because there's sure. so much here, and I'll, I'll get Please. to that. But I want people to notice verse 15, which you read. He made him rest in the garden. Most of the translations just say he put him there. He mm-hmm. put him there. But it's actually the word. You know Noah, Noah, Noah. Mm-hmm. It's actually the verb. He knowed him. Now, I'm just being silly there using the name Noah. But remember, so there's more implied. You would not get that from the English. Just he actually, the idea of settling, we would say, and I could have used settle, but it's actually the word rest. And it also implies refreshment. Remember, when we get to Genesis 6, we'll see the meaning of that. But isn't it interesting that you've got that verb that the, that, the soil creature, he causes him to be restfully settled, which even implies pleasure, mm. you see, mm. and then to service and guard it. So there's things to do and also like things purpose to purpose of man. Keep. Exactly. You yeah. could draw from that like an ecological, you know, you could say, you know, our real purpose or mankind's real first purpose uh, for being created is to service and to guard the ground. I mean, that's that that, that's that right. would be a good thing. I'm for really glad. To think about. I'm really glad that you um, that you put that in there, uh, Ross. That you emphasize that because uh, I take it that way, and as a result, I like to keep a garden, a vegetable garden, and I I love it. I get so much fulfillment and purpose out of doing that. Because not only do you produce, and I know that your wife um, uh, Bridget is is doing really well with her vegetable garden, and uh, and I love seeing the photos. And but but not only do you produce your own uh, fruit and veggies, but you also get. Uh, and I was thinking about this the other day. You 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 become familiar with the seasons. You become familiar with the plants. You become familiar with the soil and the insects and so on and so forth and the way that it all works like clockwork and as you become more and more familiar with this it's like i was thinking it's kind of like your own little um, reality tv show you can get down in it and there's so much going on in there uh, that it becomes fascinating and familiar to you i i love it and as i mentioned it gives me a lot of purpose and and satisfaction having a, a vegetable and you're a you're jonah you're a soil creature we're soil creatures mm. And yep. you rest. You actually rest. In other words, you belong in the dirt, so to speak, in the soil. Yeah, you put I, your hand in it. You put you your hands in it. it. Yes, you feel yes. life. Oh, yeah. You feel Genesis one and two it's when you're so in your like garden. That. It really, really is. And it's concrete exactly like won't do it, and asphalt will not. That's do right. It. it simply won't do it. That's right. And uh, you know. So, well, before we continue, I have to say, say this as well because we read in uh, Ross. I think it's Isaiah and and. Um, is it where it talks about, uh, and it might be Micah as well, because we've been in these books recently, uh, that uh, weapons of war will be transformed into into tools right. of gardening. And it says mm-hmm. each man, and this goes to, to your point in, in here, uh, uh, James, each man will rest under, I think it says his fig tree or his vine tree, um, yes. that as if he's made to rest and feel at peace and, and this is where he belongs. I love that. I've got both a fig tree and a, and a couple of grapevines. It's just a great yeah. Thing. That's a that's Absolutely. a great point. You know, and I think a lot of times people get this idea. We we tend to live in a world where theology uh, takes precedent over what the actual text says. And and in this case, I think a lot of people, if you said, "Why was man placed here?" and a lot of people will think that we were created to quote unquote worship God or however they might interpret, but really. What mankind is placed here is summed up beautifully here to service and to guard the ground from which he's taken. Mm -hmm. So it really does put our emphasis more on you've been put here on the earth. Take care of it. You know, this is your home. 
That's mm. the way it ought to be understood, I think. Yeah. Uh, James, I will make for him no. a help as his one before. As his one before, how do we how do Well, we I'm still going to push you back on 17 and then I'll do 18. <laughs> yeah. uh, Let's go. Just, just one. Mainly to tantalize. We've already, if people have listened to episode five, they've got a preview, and I don't want to let it out all today till we get to it. But notice on the day you eat it, dying you'll surely die. Yeah. It's hard to skip over that because people ask, well, they didn't drop dead that day. Mm-hmm. Adam lives, what was it, 930 years. Mm-hmm. So what is this all about? But what we're going to see, and I don't want to explain it yet, let's hold it. But it's the access to the tree of life that did happen on that day. And mm-hmm. it's the access to life, meaning you don't have eternal life. And if you're mm-hmm. excluded, you become dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And all of the Greek ideas about immortal souls, and we're really just a body that's a housing for the soul, these are all Greek ideas of the person. But the Hebrew idea is you're as the, you're a living soul creature, you're a living breather, and we've mm-hmm. talked about the nephesh and so mm-hmm. forth. But anyway, 18 is fantastic because mm. people always say it's coming mainly from the King James, and uh, remember even the old JPS, the 1917 JPS Jewish Publication Society mm-hmm. was very influenced by the King James, and all translations are. But they had this idea of a help meet. And I know when I was growing up uh, in Texas, people would use help meet like it was a noun. Like, you know, a woman is made as a help meet for men. Mm-hmm. And it's like help meet, like it's a word in English, a help meet. A woman is a help meet, like a woman is, you know, a housekeeper or, a, you know, a secretary or a teacher. Mm-hmm. She's a help meet. Well, actually, meet in Old English means fitting, right? We still sort of have that in our Shakespearean language, if you remember Shakespeare. Mm. You know, so it is meet to do this, meaning it's proper, it's fitting. So it actually means a help fitting. It'll make him a help. It is help, etzer, but fitting. And literally, if you look at it, it's the idea of conigdo. Uh, his very opposite facing him, hand mm-hmm. in glove, key in lock. It's even quasi-sexual. We've seen this before with the male and the female. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but, it, but of course, it is not just physical. It's implying that, remember, in chapter one, people say chapter one is one account and chapter two is another account, which is true. But there's a unity there because male and female made he him, the Adam, the soul creature. Mm -hmm. So here the soul creature is alone and incomplete. And now there is this partner, really, side-by-side partner that fits him. Mm. Literally, it's kunigdo. Like, uh, how, how would you do that literally? I said, as his one before. So if I'm a key and you're a lock, say I'm facing you, literally just facing Opposite, right. corresponding counterpart is what I right. put in the note. Right. So, and I so love therefore, that therefore, the word "before" is not used as a uh, as a signature of time. Rather, it's before him, like in front of him, or facing him, or yeah. opposite. Yeah, right. Okay. It's a very profound idea, and it does imply then that the male alone is not the fully human, and the female alone is not the fully human, but the fully human are the two fitting together. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way that they represent the image of God, in a way, that when the two become one. And I know culturally we have ideas about what is masculine, what is feminine, and girls play with dolls and boys play with trucks and all this kind of thing. And some of that is socially conditioned. But we know about Venus and Mars, and we know about all the characteristics (laughs) that seem to be kind of hardwired. And some of that kind of thing is even hormonal and who knows as we study more about the brain and so forth we'll probably find out more things about that mm-hmm. in terms of just what makes a complete human being or a human species it's got to be male and female mm-hmm. and Yehovah elohim shaped from the soil every living thing of the field Interesting. Shaped from the soil, every living thing of the field and every flyer of the skies, and he made come toward the soil creature to see what 
he would call it. And whatever the soil creature would call it, each living life breather, that was its name. And the soil called creature to called, it. called called me, to I'm it. Sorry, Thank John, you. Called to it, yeah. Thank you. That is correct. Called to it. And the soil creature called names to every animal and to the flyer of the skies of the skies and to every living thing of the field. And to soil creature, he did not find a help as his one before. And Jehovah Elohim made a deep sleep fall upon the soil creature, and he slept. And he took one from his sides. I like the way you've got that. He took one from his sides, and he closed flesh under it. And Jehovah Elohim built the side that he took from the soil creature into a woman, and he create and he made her come toward the soil creature. And the soil creature said, "This one." This time, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh to this one will be called woman, because from a man, this one was taken. Wow, there's a lot there, James. Do you want to touch on any of that? There's a lot there. Yeah, it's (laughs) wonderful language, too. Just wonderful language. Well, the call, too, is interesting. Remember, we had that before. It's like you throw a name, and mm. we, I think we actually have, in a sense, one of these. I bet he saw the birds going over. We call them birds. And he says, flyer. He says, mm. yeah, I'll call that flyer. He's probably giving names appropriate to something that he observes. I wish we had a list of the names, but maybe some of them are preserved in Hebrew. If you take some of the Hebrew names, maybe they pass down. It's interesting. You know, yeah, in the tradition like of culture. Giraffe. Yeah, right. Goraith means long neck. So it could be, that's you know, right. he saw yeah. the giraffe and said, Goraith. Uh, yeah. Goraith, right. yeah. So there you go. But but he didn't find anything that, that he wanted to say, that this, this one. Look at verse 23 again. She comes finally mm-hmm. and he builds her. I love that. He actually, mm-hmm. see, with the other creatures, he shapes them from the soil like clay. It's uh, it's actually uh, yatser to shape, but here he builds her, you know, to really fit him. Really, you, you just get more of a tension through the verb, uh, and brings her. And then he says, "This one, this time, this one, this one." You see how it's repeated? Mm, zot, mm. zot, zot, zot. And he's contrasting it with all those others that paraded in front of him, all those other creatures, mm. and he's just clearly excited. You hear the, like, why doesn't it just say one time, this one, bone of my bones, bone of my flesh, she'll be called woman, because from a man she was taken. I just read it wrongly. This one, this time, this one, this one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love it. It's like he he's stuttering. He's so excited. He's like, this one, <laughs> this, this, this one. <laughs> That's the idea. He can't believe it. And I think some of us feel that about our wives. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you something. If we just go back a little uh, way, it says um, that God took one from his sides. Now, ordinarily, we read in most translations that God took a rib and closed over the flesh. Uh, one what, James, do we really know? How, how do we understand this? Well, I just, you know, that's the nice thing about trying to make it transparent is to mm-hmm. leave it for Discussion. It's not the word rib. Uh, and if you want to interpret it as rib, you could. It does say bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So that implies a bone, right? Mm-hmm. There have been all kinds of interpretations. Uh, and I tried to just, he took one from his sides. That's just as literal as I could think mm. of uh, making it. That's I'm going to look at these. One, one comment to add to that the, the word. Sela, the root word there for side, uh, sadi lamed ayin. Uh, it's it's talking. It can also be referring to like a chamber, a side chamber. And mm-hmm. so obviously the old translators said, you know, like a rib cage. It's sort of a chamber in which our organs are. But it's also it can also mean a cell. Now, I'm not trying to get too scientific. I don't think that's the intent of the text. But I can't help but when I read this to think that it could almost hint at an understanding like that. You know, it's this 
check this cell, you know, it's just a, it's sort of a duplication. It's probably, I think it's certainly more scientific when it actually took place than what mm-hmm. we envision in our little stories yes. that we tell our children. Sure. So sure. it could very well be. So it goes on to say, uh, therefore, a man will leave his father and his mother and join with his woman, and they become one flesh. And the two of them were nude, the soil creature and his woman, and they were not ashamed. And that's the way that chapter two ends. And that brings us to the cover of the book. I know we've addressed this before, uh, but when you look at the cover of the book, the artwork that is on the book of Genesis and the TEB, uh, you have to remind yourself, the two of them were nude and they were not ashamed. James. Yeah, and you know, without going back into the cover and the artist and so forth, Chagall, whom I admire so much as an artist, it's actually going to be the key to understanding, believe it or not, the tree of the knowledge experience of good and bad. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to hold you a little bit on that. And those who heard episode five already get a hint at it. But what happens, ask yourself, what happens when they eat that forbidden fruit, as we call it, the first thing they do is cover the nudity. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. this is clearly referencing a kind of childhood state of sexual innocence. Mm -hmm. And also notice they're not ashamed. They're not ashamed. Not shamed in terms of uh, being sexually modest, of covering yourself, that idea. So they're just open. They're like uh, children. There's an Mm -hmm. innocence there. I don't sure. think they're pictured as little kids running around. You get the idea. And I mean, the author wants you to think of them as fully developed human beings, mm. but they're in a, uh, an innocent state, yeah. mm-hmm. so to speak, of, sure. as our children are until they reach a certain age of accountability. So it's kind of a, a hint there. And this idea then of leaving the father and mother and joining, uh, really interesting. It's actually like soldering or stick to. It's absolutely being molded with, and they Mm. become one. Now, the most obvious reading of that is sexual intercourse and all of its implications in terms of a bond and unity. But the rabbis and others have said for centuries, what kind of relationship ends up taking two and making them one. Yes, sexual intercourse pictures that, but what about pregnancy, which is the product? And don't you actually create from two, the two become one. Mm -hmm. And Ross, you talk about cells and knowing something. Do you realize until the enlightenment, people thought that the female contributed nothing uh, right. to the child. The child was a teeny little microscopic little man in the man's seed. And she's just the garden. You know, he plants the seed in her, in her womb, mm-hmm. in her uterus. And then the little man grows or the little woman grows, the kid grows. Well, here you have clearly two separate individuals that mm-hmm. come from a father and a mother. So now you've got four, really, father, mother, father, mother, it'd be six with the, you know, the two sets of parents. Mm -hmm. He joins her and then they produce another one. And now we know from DNA, it's an exact mixture. That's that's it. We talk about the Y, right? And the mitochondrial DNA. We talk about that today all the time. And if you check your Y, you're checking your male side all the way back, your father's 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 father. If you check the mitochondrial, you're checking mother's, 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 mm-hmm. mother's, mother's, all the way back. That's right. And, you know, people do these DNA tests today, and they get a what's called a shotgun. It's called autosomal DNA. And they go, oh, I'm part Irish, and I'm part this, and I'm 10% this, and 2% that, and wow, I didn't know I had this. That is a shotgun, because we're all made of 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, and so forth. Do mm-hmm. the math. It becomes astronomical very quickly. Mm-hmm. But, Jono, you have a father. Your father had a father. Mm-hmm. His father had a father. You see? That's so right. there's a sense in which all the others that are involved in making, say you go back five generations, great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. But that is your great-great-great-great-grandfather. It doesn't matter what went into making him, no, how, however many. 
Mm-hmm. His why goes to you. And That's same right. with the mitochondrial. That's what's amazing, yeah. that this unity actually passes so that we all could trace back theoretically, father, 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 father because we always come from one, you see, the yeah. two from the father and the mother. I just think it's amazing to think I, about. I really do. I'm, I'm really I, glad that you've highlighted that. that. This is deeply scientific and it predates you know, the knowledge of DNA and all that. But Hebrew culture, uh, you know, did you know that, uh, well, you do know this in the Torah, a woman seeds seed. Mm-hmm. Zara. And we think of seed. Oh, that's the male. No, that's not the male. A woman seeds seed refers to her uh, having a child. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. seeds seed, literally, in Hebrew. And we'll, you know, that that's actually in the book of Numbers, I think, that phrase, isn't it, Russ? Uh, I yeah. believe. I believe uh, Leviticus. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it might be Leviticus. You're right. But anyway, so that, it, what a profound verse. I, yeah. I think it is profound. And, and I'm glad that you highlighted that because that, that is the way that I interpret it. I mean, it quite literally is that the man and the woman come together and they do become one flesh in, in the child that they produce. That child is both of them in one flesh. I think that's absolutely brilliant. And I'm glad that you highlighted that. Um, we find ourselves knocking at the door of Chapter 3. Oddly enough, it is Chapter 3, Ross, because um, it, it's really just a continuation. There is no division here. There's no white space. Is that correct? Right. And I was going to ask you if you would read Chapter 2, verse 25, without stopping, and then read the first verse of Chapter uh-huh. 3 so that people can see. We'll let James talk about an interesting uh, connection there that that he brings out in the English to show something underneath the Hebrew. Ah, very good. Okay, so again from 25, and the two of them were nude, the soul creature and his woman, and they were not ashamed, and the nakash was shrewd from every living thing of the field that Yehovah Elohim made. And he said toward the woman, did Elohim indeed say you may not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said toward the nakash, from the tree, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, and from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, Elohim said, you will not eat from it, and you will not touch it, lest you die. And the Nakash said toward the woman, dying, you will not surely die. And there's our emphasis again. Before I keep going, James, the connection of these uh, verses. Yeah, and we'll pick up on the details, but... Uh what Ross had in mind particularly is this very, you'd never get it in English. Look back at uh, its note 54 nude. Okay. And you've got this arum idea is actually the word there. And then shrewd. If you look, uh, let me see in my notes real quick. 56 arum nude, smooth or slick. And we even say today, about somebody that's a slick operator or a shrewd, uh, their hands are slippery, right? Somebody that's going to fool you. So there's actually a play on words here. Uh, uh, interesting. So, and we'll talk maybe next time about the nakash. I did not make it a snake, notice. And I, w- I want us to deal with that next time. It could be a snake, but it actually means a shining one or even a hissing one. Mm-hmm. implying a kind of enchantment, the hissing one, you know, that's very shrewd, our room. So the idea of naked, nude, and shrewd, I was able to come up with this rhyme, which was pretty cool. Um, I think other translators have done this, but uh, I did not uh, get it from them. But it's sort of obvious if you, if you start thinking, okay, naked, but nude and shrewd, that's pretty mm. cool because you can even hear it in English. You can even so, hear it yeah, in English, yeah. Just to underscore, uh, the, the Hebrew uh, for nude and the Hebrew for shrewd are both tied to the same Hebrew root. So whatever it's saying about the man <laughs> and his woman, when you, when you bring that into the next verse and it talks about the nakash, that per, that. Uh, being as well is the same root word. So there must be a connection. I I just love that word play there. So Mm. most like James said, most translations don't even pick up on it, but that's a good way to do it. Now, before we continue, something like smooth, you know, in other words, Mm -hmm. uh, smooth, slick, nude, 
and yeah. later they clothe themselves and clothing is bulky right uh, yeah. they end up clothing themselves with leaves well they're not they're not smooth anymore and mm-hmm. so there's and and we use that you know you could say your skin is smooth or you could say boy he's really got some slick hands you should have seen the deal that he just made for me so we do that yeah. in English. We use a word meaning two different things. Yeah, fair enough. Now, you may want to address this next time, but I was going to you let me know, but I was going to highlight a, a curious thing that you've done here in, in Chapter 3 with Nachash uh, in that you have capitalized it. And, and is, is that a way of personifying Nachash? What, what have you done here? It is because it, it just like the soul creature, it, it's uh, whatever the Nachash is, and we'll talk about it. It seems to be a very singular being because he or it is singled out in a generic way. And we'll talk about this eternal battle between the Nakash and between the seed of the woman, which becomes really interesting as we go on. Mm -hmm. So I wanted it to be, you know, not necessarily his name, but just not like a snake. You know, but the Nakash. Also, people can read ahead, and you read it, but look at the little, those singulars and plurals are really important. You see how the, look at, uh, let's see, verse 1, you may not eat, that's plural. Did Elohim say you may not eat? Well, that's plural, the you, and you need to know that. And then also further down, verse 3, you will not eat from it. So, is he talking to Adam or to Eve or both? As she takes it, it's corporate. Dying, you will not surely mm. die, you see. So the thing is, all the way through, you're going to get the S and the P, singular, plural. Yeah. And uh, you don't get that in any other translation. So it becomes no. very helpful to know, you know, is it singular, is it plural, and might it have some sort of meaning? So again, from verse 4, and the Nachash said to the, toward the woman, dying you will not surely die, for Elohim knows that in the day that you eat from it, that your eyes will be opened, and you will be as Elohim, knowing good and bad. And the woman saw that the tree was good for an eatable thing, and that it was a longing to the eyes, and the tree was desirable for causing insight, for causing insight, that's interesting, and she took from its fruit, and she ate, and she gave also to her man, with her and he ate and the eyes of the two of them were opened and they knew that they were nude and so they and they sewed leaves of a fig tree and they made for themselves loincloths james well i think we should hold it there because that's a whole concept that we've been hinting at Mm. and and in the previous program even talked about a little bit and that is what happened here and did they die? Did they not die? Who's right? Is the Nakash correct? And did he say in the day you'll eat it, you'll die? Yeah, we had that. We just talked mm-hmm. about that. And he's saying you didn't die. So something took place, we see here. And it has to do with uh, becoming as Elohim, knowing good and bad. And the key is verse 5, knowing good and bad. What is it to know good and bad? Mm-hmm. And then the results. So let's leave people hanging. What do you think? <laughs> Let's keep that them on the edge of their seat. We've made some really good ground. We're now up to, we'll pick up again from, uh, we'll, we'll touch on this and pick up from 3.8 next time. Ross, any parting thoughts? Yeah, I was just going to highlight one piece so that we don't lose it in the transition to next week's class. It is interesting that in chapter 2, verse 16, and it says, And Jehovah Elohim laid charge upon the soil creature, saying, From every tree of the garden eating you will surely eat. When the woman responds to the Nakash um, in chapter 3, verse 2, and the woman said toward the Nakash, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, and from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, Elohim said, you, plural, will not eat from it, and you will not touch it lest you die. I like to point out that one of the things, and others have pointed this out as well, that really sets things up for what goes wrong in what follows, she does add to the command. Notice the first command really deals with a dietary rule. And she adds to that because Jehovah Elohim had said you shouldn't eat from it, but she says he said, 
you shall not eat from it nor touch it. So she adds to the word of God. And then if you think about it, Proverbs 30 and verse 6 says that if you do that, you will be found to be a liar. And that's Ross, what ends up setting be, us up. Would it be fair to say that she put a figurative fence around that tree? I, I think she really did. Mm. I, th- I think she did. I think that but, sets you know, up remember, problem. she wasn't there in the narrative in verse 17 of chapter mm-hmm, 2. Mm-hmm. So he might have said, he might have said, look, see that tree over there? You (laughs) must not eat. And I don't even want you touching that tree. Right. That's what I've been told. So let's possibly blame it on him. Right. Because usually the person who puts the fence is the person who instructs. He, Mm -hmm. she got the instruction, I think, through the man. That's the implication. Yeah, there's no reason to to, to think that that is the case. Yeah, that's fair enough. Well, they were they they may have both been were they both one when the command came because she does put it in the plural here you, whereas in verse sixteen it's you to ha adam to the man, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but that man at the time that was both of them I don't know but I have heard that oh. and that is a good don't just blame it on the woman here yeah no that's fair yeah I I picture him saying look don't even touch it okay let's just be <laughs> safe even, here yeah. <laughs> That's uh, where we're when at. we decide what it is, that's where I want to leave people hanging. When we decide what it is, we'll be able to answer some of these things. Because actually, uh, if it's just like, don't touch that stove, it's hot, and you'll burn yourself. Mm. Or don't eat that cookie I just baked, that's for after dinner. Mm-hmm. And it's just uh, infringement of a test. That's one thing. But if it's a profound change that took place that still affects us today, outside the gates of Eden, remember that phrase, we're outside the gates of Eden today. What happens when humans are put outside the gates of Eden? Good good cliffhanger. This is a good place to lead it. (laughs) This is a good place to leave it. The book of Genesis uh, from the Transparent English Bible by Dr. James Tabor. Again, you can get it from Amazon. There is a link in the description, either in paperback or in Kindle. I suggest you get both. Uh, If you get the Kindle, you can have it immediately. And as I mentioned before, the notes are available on the page and it, uh, it works really well like that. Uh, also, please do leave a five-star review, dear listeners. We would love um, to read some of those. And uh, any comments that you have, by all means, leave it in the comment section of this podcast. That's it for this week. Thank you, Ross. Thank you, Dr. James Tabor. We'll be back this time next week. And until then, have a great one. See you Thank next time.